Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Peter Shulman to talk about his really exciting new book, Coal and Empire, The Birth of Energy Security in Industrial America. This came out with the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2015. Now, this is an exciting book for a number of reasons. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Peter Shulman to talk about his really exciting new book, Coal and Empire, The Birth of Energy Security in Industrial America. This came out with the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2015. Now, this is an exciting book for a number of reasons. First of all, it's exciting to read the product of somebody who is such a gifted writer. It's such a pleasure to read. It's so clearly written, um, and it's really crafted in a way that really respects and honors the book as a writing object. And so it's really, really clearly and well-written, and that means it's also accessible to a wide variety of readers, um, even those who know nothing about coal or empire or U.S. history or SDS or anything like that. It's also exciting because the story that it's telling is so surprising in so many ways and is so relevant to understanding contemporary U.S. policy, um, especially as it relates to energy, concerns with energy and concerns with the relationship between energy and global politics. What Peter does is he takes us into um, the 19th century. Okay, and he's showing us that some of the sort of major security concerns and connections between security and empire and energy that we might associate with a 20th century story actually have their roots further back. Um, and it's important to understand what those roots are, as you'll hear um, in the moments to come, because understanding what those roots are can help us attend to and understand modern concerns in the 21st century in a way that's much more um, potentially rich and productive. We learn here about the interaction between technology and politics. We learn about steamships. We learn about 
um, the Confederate Army and the way they were powering their vehicles. We learn about U.S. Um, interests in colonizing areas all over the place. We learn about mathematical um, ways of calculating shipping routes. We learn about so much. He takes us into classrooms. Um, he gives us um, intellectual histories in the most exciting sense of concepts of economy and of logistics and others. There's just so much happening in this book. It's really a contribution, not just to the field of STS, but also to a lot of other fields and historiographies. So I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. And I really hope you have a chance to get your hands and your eyes and your brains onto um, and into this book, because it really does reward a close and careful reading. And also it's a whole lot of fun. So I hope you enjoy. Um, thanks very much for listening. And thanks for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Peter Schulman about his brand new book, Coal and Empire. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Peter, and thanks so much both for writing a super clear, really fascinating book, and also for making time today to talk with me about it. Welcome to the channel. Thanks, Carla. It's great to be here. So, Peter, let's start out, as is kind of traditional um, for the channel, as you probably know, by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field. So insofar as the book covers a lot of really fascinating stuff um, related to history of science and technology and its connection to empire and politics, what brought you to the history of science and technology in U.S. history um, specifically? Sure. Uh, I think like a lot of us who practice uh, and research history of science and technology, I came at it from a roundabout uh, origin. Mm -hmm. um, so I started off as a math major. There's a whole story of how I got to that. But I started off as a math major. And um, I, I'd always had this idea when I was younger that I would be some kind of scientist. And I went to college and I took lots of science courses. I spent the summer on a dinosaur dig in Montana, which was a dream that I'd had. It was really awesome, really fantastic. We found a lot of bones. It was really cool. Um, but the more courses I took, the more I realized that uh, I didn't really want to do laboratory science. I, I didn't want to be a mathematician. I didn't want to spend summers out in the field. And I was starting to get pretty worried with, uh, about what I was going to do with my life. Um, and it was uh, so something of a crisis moment in my, uh, my junior year of college. And I had the great fortune of taking a series of courses uh, that really kind of reoriented my trajectory. Uh, so one of them dealt with um, political philosophy, which was just a really exciting, a really exciting course for me. Uh, another was on the dynamics of complex natural systems, which would be a strange thing to kind of push someone into the humanities, but, uh, but, it, but it did. Um, it was this course, it was a graduate seminar. It was really fun. And uh, we were reading stuff like um, how do river networks form and trying to mathematically model those kinds of natural phenomena and count how many species are there on earth. And, you know, I found, you know, we we're reading these, these papers and I found I was more interested in kind of asking questions about the fundamentals, like what assumptions were going into counting how many species there were on earth, like, right. The species is a, it's a human concept, right? How do we define the boundaries between two different species, right? That's ultimately there's some judgment that goes into, you know, whether two populations are separate or, or the same. And so I was, I kept raising my hand in the course and asking questions like that. And I, I found increasingly I was interest, more interested in, in the questions than the answers. I, I wanted to know more about how, how the science was done rather than, than do it myself. 
And at the same time, I was taking a, a course in literary theory, which was my first exposure to um, the social world of Derrida and Lacan and Foucault and, and others. And people that I don't actually tend to use much in my work at all, but was at that moment in my intellectual growth was really influential in showing me you know, really different ways of looking at the social world that was really exciting. Um, so I started to, the, the next year, I started taking more courses in environmental history and uh, history of science and, and realized this was kind of my my entry point into uh, um, a future graduate career in this in this subject. Um, so, and right about the same time that as I was going through this transition, I spent a summer uh, working at a think tank in Washington dealing with energy policy. And this is the first time I, I was interested in environmental issues, and uh, I was assigned to this this project that dealt with uh, with energy. Uh, it was sponsored by the Department of Energy's Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office, and they wanted us to look at futures scenarios, like predictions of how much energy America would consume and produce in 20 years out in the future, 50 years out in the future. So they could kind of have an estimate of, well, if we go to a policymaker and we say, you, you want the future to look like this, here are some policy steps you have to take now in order to get there. If you want the future to look like that, here are steps you'd have to take to get there. And that was my first exposure to really thinking about energy. I never really asked where the electricity came from. Um, I'd never really uh, thought much about those issues. And, and I think that the moment that it all crystallized for me was uh, one day I was in the DC metro system, which I took to, to and from work every day. And there's this big uh, poster advertising why you should ride the Metro. And the, the ad said something to the effect of, I, I didn't have a camera phone back then, but it's something to the effect of you should ride the Metro because unlike driving your car to work, it doesn't pollute. And I think I ordinarily would have just walked past that, but because I was dealing so much with, you know, the sources of electricity generation, which in the DC area at the time was, you know, 50% coal generated electricity, right? You know, I was thinking, well, there are perfectly good reasons to, to prefer public transit, but uh, it, it's not that it doesn't pollute. It just pollutes in ways that are not as, as visible uh, to, to us as, uh, as riders. So that was when I thought, you know, once I, once I decided to go to graduate school and study science and technology in a historical context, I, I figured energy was a, was a kind of an open area um, that, that I wanted to pursue. Awesome. So my next question is, how did you stop being me? as an undergrad and start being, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think we, it's, it's, um, the parallels are really striking the interest in complexity theory. Um, I also started out yeah. as a paleontologist. So this really? is really, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is really fascinating. I worked in Montana cool. for a couple of years. Montana. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, um, so this is really fascinating for lots of reasons for me. <laughs> okay. So you've talked a little bit about how you came to work, um, on and, and how you came to be interested in energy and, and maybe coal specifically, right? So the book itself um, takes this on, but it takes it on in what might seem um, to current historiography or to some listeners as a um, to be a rather unusual kind of a way. So contrary to most historical accounts, as you show um, in early on in the book, Americans didn't discover the connection between energy, and this is in the words of the book, national interests and security in the 20th century, but instead during the 19th century. Right. In the 19th yeah. century, as the book shows, um, and again, in the very, very clear words of the book, the widespread adoption of fossil fuels presented opportunities and challenges for foreign relations, for economic expansion, for national defense and for naval strategy. And we're talking here not about oil, but about coal. Mm -hmm. So coal in the 19th century, what brought you to that particular focus for the project? 
Well, um, like everything else, it started off somewhere else. Um, I, I thought I, I started where um, I end up arguing uh, against. I thought I would write about oil uh, in the 20th century, which was what seemed like the obvious thing to do um, for the kinds of issues I was interested in. And I, I had this interest in environmental history, and there's a literature on the environmental uh, world of oil uh, in terms of production, consumption, right? There's, there's a big literature on that. And there's a, another literature that deals with oil as a geostrategic commodity. That's a, also a huge literature that crosses over much into political science and international relations. And I, the work I wanted to do was um, kind of bring those uh, into dialogue with each other because there were very few works that dealt seriously um, with both. And the, the policymakers at least when I was thinking about, you know, conceiving this project back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, we're dealing with issues that were strategic or issues that were environmental, and they often didn't overlap very much. So I started, I figured I'd start at the beginning of the story. So I was looking back for when oil first became strategically significant, which was right at the beginning of the 20th century, um, right before World War I, but really takes off during World War I. And um, what I was finding was, the, you know, as I push back, you know, year by year, like looking at um, uh, periodicals, newspapers, government documents and getting into the archives and my kind of my early explorations there. As I push back earlier and earlier, I found that the sources of the, the oil debate, um, they were the people that I was reading were talking about coal uh, and oil kind of started as a footnote to the coal story. Uh, and to the extent where, you know, sometimes you'd even encounter uh, writers saying, you know, naval strategists or um, administrators saying, you know, oil is basically liquid coal. So all the things we just spent several pages dealing with on coal just apply to oil. It's, you know, it's the liquid form of that. Turns out there are differences, but that was, you know, how it originated. So I was thinking about coal. Uh, and I thought, you know, at first it would be, you know, a section of the opening chapter, maybe it'd be a first chapter. And then the more I looked, the deeper and deeper I was pulled into the 19th century, which was completely against my, my will. I, I wasn't planning on, on writing a mainly 19th century dissertation whatsoever. Um, you know, my, my graduate training was heavily focused on, in 20th century American historiography. And um, it, it just, the story the history pulled me further and further back. And I, the, the, the real um, kind of moment was uh, I, I was in a, a reading group that was looking at American foreign relations in the late 19th and early 20th century. And someone uh, in the group, another graduate student uh, that, that was there said, you know, we're reading all about these calling stations. Can someone describe more what these calling stations are? And so people turned to me like, well, you, you deal with this. What, what's a calling station? And, oh, I, I knew vaguely what it was. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to the National Archives next week and you know, I'll see if I can find some uh, some some photographs or something, and I did. I went there. I found tons of photographs. They were huge. I had no no idea of how big these uh, these you know things were on the landscape, and that started really getting me thinking that there was there was more to this story. And I started digging deeper and deeper, and pulling myself back decade by decade by decade. Uh, and so the next thing I know, it's it's the eighteen thirties and forties, and I figured I, I better start there. <laughs> So how did you move the project from dissertation to book? Like, were there any major ways in which it changed from one form to the other? Oh, yeah, it changed a ton. Um, I, I had this conception when I wrote the dissertation that I was going to make it as book-like as possible, so as to to ease that transition, to make it you know, as publishable early on as possible, which, which I think is solid advice, um, aspirationally, anyway. Uh, 
it, it turned out not to work as planned at all. Um, you know, I, at my defense, my, at my dissertation defense, I, I said something along the lines of, right, the, the, the uh, project seems to me at this point to be something like, you know, the life cycle of a person. Like you've got this, when you conceive of the project, it's this new baby. It's really exciting. You don't know what's gonna, where it's going to go and how it's going to develop. And then the finished book, I was, I was imagining what it must be like. Like it's, it's actually there. It's out doing things in the world. And the dissertation is like the awkward teenage years where, it, you know, things are just a little gangly and you know it braces and i know it was just that was kind of how i imagined that the dissertation <laughs> actually um turning out uh, i'm gonna lay it, get it all out there um so what, what ended up happening was i i felt that there were uh i wanted to tighten up the narrative in many ways and really make sure i ended the story with oil in ways that i thought were, were more satisfying uh and what ended up happening was you know dividing one chapter into three and then there were three chapters i condensed into one and i spent i spent actually several more years digging back in the archives uh which and I, which took way longer than i had expected or, or planned uh i'm really glad i did and i'm, I'm really lucky that i had the the time and opportunity to do it um i think the 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 product is is I'm much more pleased with it than I think I would have been had I had to stop you know on some other deadline earlier. So I, I'm I'm happy I'm happy with that. Um, but it took a lot of reconceptualization in in really figuring out what I was trying to say and what the what the story really meant. Um, I, I'm sure that the how I articulate the argument in the dissertation is probably different from what I say in the in the book. Uh, so it it did change. So the book actually presents three major arguments, right, right at the beginning. And I'm going to lay these out super, super quickly, um, and then we'll get into really the, the uh, texture of the way that those arguments develop and the um, cases that they're based on. So one of the arguments we've already talked about, right, this is that Americans really didn't begin thinking about energy in terms of security around oil in the early 20th century, but instead around coal in the 19th century. A second major argument, and we'll um, look at this and the way it develops uh, in a few moments, or uh, at least uh, when we talk about later chapters, is that the security need for distant coaling stations, so bringing up this coaling station um, issue that you already talked about. It's, it's, it survived in the, in the book. <laughs> exactly. So the, the need for these distant coaling stations in the late 19th century didn't catalyze the emergence of an American island empire around 1898. Instead, it was the other way around. The establishment of an American island empire around that time created new demands for coal and for coaling stations. And we'll see how that plays out and why that's important in a moment. Okay? And third, technological change was integral to American foreign relations. So the intersection of technology and politics as a theme really is at the very heart of the book. And the book pays a lot of attention, not just to politicians and policymakers, to naval officers and naval administrators, but also to scientists and engineers. And so that's a vital part of this story. Okay, so let's actually get into the chapters after the intro. So the first chapter, I'm just going to say a little bit about, um, and then we're going to kind of plow on and get to the next. 
So the first three chapters look at the emergence of steam power and fossil fuels as, as you put it um, early in the book, subjects for federal policymakers and international relations in the couple decades before the Civil War. The first chapter looks at the origins of international steam politics. How did steam become crucial? How did it become international? And how did these vessels emerge as major um, kind of consumers of coal? So it traces 19th century American debates about the political economy and really the transformations of political economy of global information. We have here new vessels that are transoceanic that become valued um, for their ability to transmit news and to transmit information and correspondence. And steam power becomes really important, not just for that, but also for um, kind of exploring the markets, as you put it here, of South America, Africa, and the Far Far East. Now, what happens is steamship operators become um, kind of troubled because they run into problems related to fueling. There's not enough fuel. um, There's not enough coal. The coal is not high enough quality, um, and it's really, really expensive. So because these ships depended on public funding and served national purposes, again, relating to news and correspondence, etc., these fueling issues weren't just private issues. They become subjects of public debate. Okay, so that sets the stage for moving on. Okay, and here's where I I really want to hear, um, you know, kind of what you have to say about all this. So as we move from there, that sets the stage for the second chapter. And this chapter really looks at these engineers, the mechanics, the scientists who help you know, start to help deal with these issues. They help build new steamships and they help um, kind of troubleshoot these fueling issues that are allowing the steamships to run. Now, the chapter argues that Americans thought about solving these challenges of global steam power, not by trying to develop an empire of foreign coaling stations, but instead by pursuing this concept that's crucial here, the concept of economy. So Americans began pursuing economy. So Peter, what did economy mean to these 19th century Americans? And for you, what's important for us to understand about the work that that concept is doing at this part of the story? Sure. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I guess this this chapter two and then chapter three in in different ways are dealing with uh, economy. Uh, And in a sense, I... I was following some inspiration I got from uh, from Tim Mitchell and some of uh, before his Carbon Democracy book came out, uh, talking about this concept of the economy as a noun, as a thing. Uh, you know, we talk about measuring GDP and unemployment rates, and you know, his argument is. The economy doesn't become a concept until, at least in the Anglo-American world, until the 1930s or so. Uh, um, I think others have said, push it back a generation in the German-speaking world, which is fair. Uh, But if you go further back in the the 19th century, economy is still a process. It's not a thing. And this provided the guiding uh, goal or metaphor, aspiration for how scientists and engineers thought about solving these problems with coal. And, and I distinguish in this chapter, this second chapter, between economy and efficiency, which I think we tend to use almost interchangeably, although maybe you stop to think about it. You, you know, they're slightly different terms, but we use them kind of to, to give roughly the same um, meaning. But back in the, the early 19th century, uh, economy was, was really modeled after Right, it's Greek origins as proper management, proper management of the household, right, the 
domestic economy, proper management of the polity, political economy, uh, and economy when it came to fuel, uh, it was more than just thinking about steam engines and how they operated. It was more than thinking about as efficiency later came to be identified in the context of thermodynamics, which really develops in the 1850s and beyond as a property of engines, right? There's an ideal of how much was physically possible for an engine to do given how much coal goes in and how much work it could, it could put out. Uh, Economy was was bigger than just thinking about the design of engines. Economy had to do with the training of the engineers who built them. It had to do with the flows of of fuel into them and the qualities of those fuels and where they came from and uh, bureaucratic administration. It was a much bigger system. It was a much bigger way of thinking about um, how these engines operate and how to affect the, the goals they wanted, which is to have commerce and to have of defense. Uh, and so economy was what is, is what I use throughout this chapter to think about what geologists or chemists or engineers were doing, wh- why they approached the subject the way they do. So this was a, a time in the 1840s and 50s when Americans were not typically talking about looking for new territory to solve these problems. They weren't talking about looking for uh, coaling stations to, to support American trade, American interests. And there were a few voices who did but they were few and far between. The predominant way of approaching these new problems that steam power brought to Americans was through economizing the whole process, um, through looking for new technologies, new engineering projects, new ways of designing engines, new investigations into the qualities of different coals. Right, Some coals are better suited for steam engines for ocean transport, and some are better suited for steel making, and some are better suited for, um, for, for railroads. Uh, and uh, so there was a lot of chemical analysis and uh, really trying to identify which coals would economize this process for American interests better. Mm-hmm. So coal wasn't the only thing that was being economized, and the economies weren't just coming up um, in conversation in terms of how to design and think about coal and ships. They were uh, Economies were also coming up, and the economy itself was coming up in conversations about time and space. So Chapter 3 looks at conversations in the 1840s and 1850s about how to economize time and space. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar um, with, uh, with why this argument is so important, how is the way that you're thinking about time and space and economy here importantly different from previous historical accounts of American attitudes toward time and space in this period? And, and what's important for us to understand about that? Sure. Um, there, there's a, a great literature that I've, uh, you know, I've drawn from and, and learned from that often talks in the 19th century over industrialization about these refrains that Americans used again and again about the annihilation of time and space. And we see it with the postal system, the innovative American postal system, and we see it with the railroad, and we see it with telegraphy. And and Americans certainly use this language that these new technologies, they didn't call them technologies, these new innovations would annihilate time and space. They would, they would make these, these concepts irrelevant. They would make everywhere connected to everywhere else, you know, instantaneously. Um, but what, what I was finding because I was looking for this concept of economy was, as it turned out, uh, the, the phrases, you know, phrases about the economizing time and space were actually more common 
then fully the annihilation of time and space. And economy here is, is very much a relative concept, right? It's about, uh, you know, you don't have to annihilate the distance between California and, you know, Shanghai, Canton, uh, as long as Americans can get there faster than the British can get there, right? It's a relative concept. So this economy very much fits in with how Americans were actually approaching these, these problems, which is a very realistic, how can we beat the competition, commercially, for example, or how can we, um, you know, defend against a potential foreign invader, right? It had to be better than the competition, not, you know, absolutely uh, at the limit, um, you know, destroy time and space. So economizing time and space was very much a a concept that was um, very widespread at this time in the antebellum period. Uh, And so this kind of helps give me the segue into Americans who did go abroad in these government-sponsored missions looking for coal for commercial purposes to develop these American steamship lines. And, uh, and again, they're framing it in terms of how to economize this process uh, in the greater interests of you know, American trade or American defense. Now, this is such an interesting part of the story for someone who works on um, either international history or even East Asia because um, you're talking about examples that include American interest in coal from Borneo. Um, but also, you talk about Commodore Perry's interest in coal as a motivating factor of his interest in and his trip to Japan. And that's act- that's just a really, really interesting perspective on a story that I think a lot of us um, in East Asian studies might teach, right, and might read about um, in the context of um, foreign interest or American interest in Japan. But we don't typically teach it and we don't typically think about it as um, part of this larger story about energy and resources and coal. Mm. Um, So it's a really interesting part of the book here for listeners um, who are listening to us right now who are interested in U.S. foreign relations, especially with respect to Japan. And uh, you talk about Formosa as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big part of this this story. And uh, it's not like historians haven't you know, mentioned or discussed this before, I, I think I try to bring it really front and center uh, and really emphasize that coal was central to the to the expedition. Um, you know, part of the, the challenge has been that because of how history actually unfolded over the 1850s and beyond with Japan rapidly industrializing, becoming a major world power and kind of the whole history that, you know, historians know very well, that it that retrospectively has framed Perry's expedition, you know, and at the time, very few people, Perry included, were thinking of, were imagining that as what the outcome was going to be, because what was really valuable to them was reaching China. They were all trying to get to, you know, vast potential markets in China that they imagined and had imagined for decades would would be there, you know, awaiting them if only they could tap it. Uh, and with steam power, uh, this introduced this new this new problem that. To get to China in the fastest way possible meant basically stopping in Japan. That was it was in the way of the steamship steamship lines, which is what brought Japan into this geopolitical orbit for Americans in a new way. Um, so yes, the, you know they protested the treatment of whalers who washed up on on their shores. That's you know certainly a good uh, you know good part of the story. Uh, but really, they were thinking about these these networks of steamship lines, and you know between the the first chapter, which deals with um, all of the uh, the proposals that Congress received to to build steamship lines around the world, 
which I try to show was was a huge industry, right? There were tons of people who were proposing, you know, to Congress, you know, please grant me this, you know, pass some legislation that will grant me funding to build a steamship line to go to to Ireland, to the Baltics, to Africa, to the, the Caribbean, to Central America, to uh, to China, to Japan, to to wherever. Um, and and that's really the context in which this expedition happened. It was Americans imagining. You know, we're going to be building the steamship line. This is the, to, to, from California, which had newly become a part of the United States, to um, to China. And the line didn't exist. There were no steamships when Perry went over that could make that trip without stopping. Uh, th- those didn't exist. There were no ships large enough, uh, no engines that were powerful enough, to, uh, you know, couldn't carry enough coal uh, to do those trips. So they were imagining how would we actually get there. Uh, and this is really w- what draws the, the Japan story in. But what's, what was really cool to me when I when I first started researching this back in graduate school was looking at Perry's own or the, the expedition's own official publications, which were, as far as I know, one of the very few uh, government documents that were published in full in three volumes apiece by both the House and the Senate. It, it does happen. There's some, t- you know, with certain major reports and stuff, but it's very unusual for both houses of Congress uh, back in the 19th century to both publish these very large uh, volumes. And what was really cool was uh, finding that the, the first volume was the narrative. And this is the one that I think historians have, for good reason, drawn from uh, the most. But the second volume is almost all natural history. It's full of illustrations. Uh, it's full of geological reports, reports about coal expeditions. And it's, you know, it's got pictures of fish and pictures of you know, all sorts of cool things that they found along the way. And this was, this was a whole volume in and of itself. Uh, and then there's a third volume that deals with all astronomical observations. Uh, and I really think that this kind of scientific and technical aspects of the expedition have been have really been um, been missed uh, for for too long. They were actually quite central, which was, and it was standard. This was standard practice for major naval expeditions for both Britain and the United States at the time to uh, to include natural history as part of the the objects of the expedition. So, calling all grad students who are listening to this, um, <laughs> do a dissert somebody do a dissertation on this topic, and we will eagerly read it. Here, here. Um, yeah, it sounds fabulous. <laughs> So as we move um, into the last chapters of the book, we move into chapters that uh, collectively think about and consider how um, American thinking was shaped by concerns with security and foreign relations and how attitudes towards kind of coal and oil um, shaped them and were shaped by them. So chapter four brings us to Lincoln. We have to talk about Lincoln. Right? Okay. I mean, we, can't, we, we have to talk about this is a fascinating chapter of the story. This looks at the relationship between coal and the internationalization of the American Civil War. Now, in this period, Lincoln is actually pursuing the colonization of free blacks outside the U.S., as you, as you describe here in the mm-hmm. book. So can you talk about the relationship between coal and Lincoln's project to set up a colony in Chiriqui, right, in what's now the border between Panama and Costa Rica? What did coal have to do with Lincoln's colonization project? Sure, sure. And now this this subject of of colonization has... um Again, lots of historians have written about it. I, I don't think um, uh, it's certainly not unknown to, to scholars of the Civil War. Um, but, you know, digging into the, the, the project that Lincoln focused on the most, it really, I, I think, shows a different side of what was actually going on. Um, Lincoln had long been interested in colonization. And this is an idea that goes back to the very beginning of the 19th century. It's this deeply rooted concept that um, uh, many Americans had who were 
you know, didn't like slavery, would prefer to see an end of slavery somehow, but couldn't quite imagine how to get there because they couldn't imagine that it was possible to have a single democratic polity that had people of different races in it, groups of you know different races. So th- the basic concept was, well, we'll we'll emancipate slaves, we'll emancipate the enslaved peoples, and just move them somewhere else. And of course, back to Africa was the the prime. Um, kind of rhetorical target of this. This is part of the origins of the Republic of Liberia. Uh, but but during the war, Lincoln gets very focused on this project in, as you say, in Chiriki, which is in this borderlands kind of between the disputed border at the time between what's now Panama and Costa Rica. And the, the Panama portion at the time was part of what's now Colombia. It had a name change in the middle of this period. It's actually kind of confusing what everything was called. Um, but uh, but there is this region over the course of the 1850s that was very much a part of the same story of industrialization of, of energy and transportation and steam power. Uh, there was a, an investor, a, a promoter named Ambrose Thompson, uh, who first he tried to get Congress to fund several of these steamship lines that were, like I mentioned, very popular uh, targets for um, – uh, for seekers of subsidies, congressional subsidies. Uh, and when that didn't pan out, and there was political support for it. I mean, there are plenty of people who wanted to see him get these get these lines. Uh, and when that didn't pan out, he started collecting a series of grants uh, in this region of Chiriki with the idea of uh, setting up some kind of, of colony there to exploit either the region either as a transit uh, point between uh, the Caribbean and the Pacific coast, this is, of course, the time before the Panama Canal, when the and before a trans um, uh, a transcontinental railroad, where the fastest way to get from the east coast of North America to California was to take a ship down to Panama or somewhere in Central America and go across the isthmus wherever you were, and then take a steamship back up to the California coast. So he thought this region could be one that would compete with the existing route which went um, more or less where the canal ended up being put several decades later. There was a first a mule line there and then a railroad line in 1855, and he thought this could be good for that. But then he thought uh, there were indications that this region had a lot of coal, and he got this idea that this would be a, a great way to help the United States by, by making a deal to sell this coal to the United States Navy, because they needed a lot of it. They were increasingly building steamships in the 1850s. So he you know, makes a contract with the Navy Department under James Buchanan in the, around 1859, and then the whole thing just blows up catastrophically. He was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He was promising um, you know, the government in Bogota one thing and then telling Americans another thing. And he was really trying to just keep everything together, but he was really not uh, not doing such a hot job of it. Uh, and so it all fell apart. And then the Civil War happened, uh, the American Civil War, uh, and also a civil, also a civil war in, um, in Colombia. And uh, he tried to revive the project by uh, by interesting Lincoln in it, and Lincoln was was amenable at first, and Lincoln gets very fixated on the idea of this would be a, a potential place to send um, free blacks, to, to, and they could mine the coal for the Navy in the Caribbean, which, of course, the, the Navy needed a lot of coal at this at this time. So uh, they go so far as, as getting some legislation passed and uh, working out a contract, and by all accounts, uh, they had a list of, of many people who were willing to set sail 
uh, and, and settle uh, in this in this land. Uh, there are many, many more. The majority, obviously, the majority of um, free blacks in America did not want to go and they would not have gone, I, I don't think. Uh, but there were some who, given their circumstances, were willing to give it a try. And uh, then that all fell apart and it kind of just got wrapped up in the politics of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, there was still some skepticism, uh, especially from the Union Navy, from the, the head, Gideon Wells, head of the Navy Department, that this was all a scam to begin with. And he was probably right about that. Uh, and so the whole thing falls apart by early 1863, um, despite many, many attempts of Ambrose Thompson to, to revive it uh, uh, later. Um, but what, what ends up being really interesting is, uh, so first, how... This whole colonization project, which is very, I think, revelatory uh, towards American attitudes and changing American attitudes towards slavery during the early years of the war, and certainly Lincoln's, but also you know those around him and Americans more generally, uh, and and you know the the you can read in the black press you know, attitudes uh, they had around it uh, as well. You read Frederick Douglass on it, for example. Um, but it also only made sense in the context of, of the industrialization of steam power, right? This whole project would not have happened uh, without the previous two decades of kind of the emergence of these uh, large steamship lines uh, and, and their demand for coal. That was the, the fundamental context that made this whole project uh, conceivable. Um, so, yeah, but then but what, what gets interesting, you know, further is – Despite Ambrose Thompson's claims that the Navy needed so much coal in the Caribbean, it ended up not needing coal from from Chiriqui because it turns out uh, Pennsylvania could provide vast sums of coal, more than anybody had ever ever imagined, to prosecute the war effort. Uh, and so, you know, this end of the chapter deals with what actually what actually fueled the Union war effort and why the, the Confederate war effort had such, uh, such difficulty in, in fueling itself. Um, that's kind of where I, where I end up that chapter. So you'll hear non-human actors coming into the conversation. <laughs> the ships right outside my, my apartment are like, yeah, talk about the ships more. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to heed the call of the non-human actors um, in right the story. We're going to talk more about the ships. And this brings us into more of a conversation about the coaling stations that we've been talking about. So as we move into the fifth chapter, we move into the period between 1865 and 1898 um, and a conversation about what Americans meant, um, as you describe here, when they argued or denied that steam power required foreign coaling stations. Now, Americans were trying to justify acquiring the islands from the Danish West Indies to Santo Domingo to Hawaii for their value as refueling stations. And you make a point, I think this is an important point in this chapter, that the reasons for these justifications in the earlier period around um, 1865-ish were very different from the justifications used in the later period around 1898-ish. So in the earlier period, um, as you show here, appeals to the commercial to commercial expansion really dominated. Many of the sites that were being looked at as refueling stations were constrained, though, by an international law that held they can only be useful in peacetime. So this is kind of an interesting part of the story. Later on, the justification is more often based um, not on this appeal to commercial expansion, but instead on a sense of territorial insecurity and a need for national defense. So we have this really interesting shift of a concern um, 
from a concern with commercial expansion to a concern with territorial defense. Um, can you talk a little bit about that shift? For you, what's most important for us to understand about that shift? Sure. I guess if, if there's one takeaway, it's I would love historians, or at least I would claim that historians should stop saying uh, the United States need coaling stations in the late 19th century. Uh, I think that is a deeply problematic uh, statement. Um, for one, it meant different things to different people, but it, but I really want to question what it meant to to need a coaling station. So like you say, right immediately after the Civil War, uh, there were you know, pretty important figures in the, the government, like William Seward, who continued as the Secretary of State, who really you know, saw the challenges of the, and the difficulties the Union Navy did indeed have operating in the Caribbean during the war, and in that, which I, you know, I discuss you know, a lot in this, this chapter, and uh, said, you know, we should, we should have these stations. It would be really important to, to do so. This is why he pursues uh, possible um, you know, annexation of uh, uh, you know, appropriation of the uh, Danish West Indies and a couple of other potential places. Um, but the the retort was, well, you know, the only reason why the U.S. needed those coaling you know, would have needed those coaling stations in the first place is it didn't have access to the entire southern coastline, and no one was really contemplating in any you know conceivable way that that was going to be a problem again. Uh, so. Um, so that was kind of, you know, one aspect of it. Uh, but then what takes off over the decades that followed was a frequent rhetorical appeal politically to a need for coaling stations, which was typically in, in most, if not all cases, really masking a much more uh, kind of pecuniary interest, right? There's you know, speculative investments in, in different places like Santo Domingo, like Samoa, uh, like Hawaii, uh, that, you know, the reasons why politicians or potential investors or you know, newspapermen would, would talk about the, the so-called need for coaling stations was really about, a, it was, it was a, the term had taken on a political value because of the experience of the Civil War, um, but what they were actually pushing for were coaling stations typically in places where the Navy didn't operate, and no one was really imagining. And the Navy was saying, "We don't. We don't need a coaling station in Santa Domingo. We don't need Samana Bay. We don't need a coaling station in Pago Pago." Uh, but once you know, the, the rhetoric ended up being very, very powerful. I, I, I write about this entrepreneurial diplomacy uh, of, of um, people trying to get these stations uh, for their own interests, and then kind of turning it over to the the, the government in Washington as this is really in the national interest. Uh, but what happens by the 1890s is a different justification for the so-called need for coaling stations, and this is I, I discuss Alfred Thayer Mahan here and his his thinking, and what. You know the rhetoric around so-called needing coaling stations in the 1890s tends to be much more focused on a fear of what other great powers were going to do, particularly Britain, but also Germany, and also potential, you know, a sense of insecurity from uh, from the Far East, from Japan, from China, very much kind of a yellow peril threat sort of thing. Uh, and you see lots of writings about. Um, right, the strategic need for Hawaii, not the economic justification, which had its own kind of set of arguments, but the strategic need for Hawaii was justified not because the United States needed a coaling station itself, but it needed to deny Britain a coaling station because if Britain had a coaling station in Hawaii, that would make its potential naval actions against the entire 
Western American coast um, much easier. I mean, actually conceivable in ways that it wouldn't be otherwise. Uh, so that really becomes kind of the, the motivation. But what, what's actually happening, this is really all at a theoretical level. All these debates are at a very theoretical level. At a practical level, people in the Navy Department and, and kind of more generally people who are thinking about shipping and transportation and uh, and trade and commerce, what they're doing is actually building new kinds of ships and developing new kinds of technologies and new mathematical techniques for navigation to economize time and space again uh, to minimize the need for foreign coaling stations. So even as Americans were talking about how important it is to get a coaling station off the coast of West Africa. Uh, you know, the Navy was just starting to design ships in the 1880s that could sail around the world without ever stopping a single time with newly efficient engines, vastly, you know, larger coal supplies, you know, holding you know, 2,000 times, ridiculous amounts of coal compared with just a, a few decades earlier. Uh, and that, you know, naval strategy... Uh, and, and, and how that actually looked in terms of what ships it built, cruisers to go long distances and battleships to hug, kind of hug close to the coastline, that they designed these ships and naval strategy to take into account that the United States did not have, was not likely to, to get, and did not, in fact, need foreign calling stations. But then, the, then 1898 happens, and the United States suddenly gets all this territory, and then the whole story changes direction. So we're going to get to 1898, but before that, I need to ask you about great circles. So <laughs> one of these, because um, it's really interesting, and I know you're, you know, you're interested in this as well, right? Um, one of these mathematical um, uh, tools for calculating um, how to be more efficient, right? Given the uh, amount of coal that these ships had, um, was the tool of calculating uh, great circle routes. What, what the hell are those, and why, <laughs> why is that so interesting and important as this part of the story? Yeah, this is um, you know one of the most fun parts of this this book to write actually. Um, so great circles, and many of your your audience would probably um, maybe have encountered these before, right? It's it's the the shortest distance on the surface of a sphere between two points, or it's the, the di- a diameter of of a sphere. Uh, and so a, a portion, an arc of a great circle, would be the shortest distance between two points on the globe, for example. And you know we're, we've. I certainly grew up looking at Mercator maps. I think most of us um, have. And even when we may know better, uh, it's very easy to imagine that the shortest distance between two points on the map is drawing a line on a Mercator map. But, of course, that's not right um, because the Mercator maps are are highly distorted. Uh, And if you look at a globe, you see that the shortest distance between two points often crosses over places that you wouldn't expect. So going between say, San Francisco and uh, um, uh, Canton, right, it really brushes up against the Aleutian Islands. It's a very northern uh, route. And for, you know, for anybody who's flown uh, to, uh, to China, you know that you, know, you often go over the North Pole because um, that's, in fact, the, the Great Circle, more or less, the shortest route. But the reason why this is interesting is, to me anyway, uh, the, uh, Great Circles were not new mathematical innovations, right? The concept had been around for centuries, if not longer. Uh, and, you know, if you go back and look at, you know, the treatises on navigation back to the, at least the 17th century, um, you see navigators write and mathematicians writing about, you know, theoretically, the great circle is the, fa- you know, the, the shortest distance between two points. But of course, we can't sail those typically because they don't match up when you have a sailing ship. They don't match up with 
the um, you know, prevailing winds or, or currents. Right? It was it was not practical in most cases to to follow uh, a great circle route. So they understood that it was possible, but uh, that it, it was a you know geographically it made sense, but it wasn't practical to do so. In the 19th century, with the development of these steamships. Navigators started saying, well, now we are liberated from the wind and waves and we can travel these great circle routes. But what they found was just because the technology made it possible, the the navigation didn't quite do so yet because the virtue of Mercator navigation was you had to calculate your route just once and you followed the route and you kept on the route, and it was pretty straightforward to get to where you were going, even if it were a little more roundabout um, than it would be to go directly, you know, directly via a great circle. But the mathematics of following a great circle were much more complicated. It required repeated um, uh, calculations, and this was, and it, the math was pretty complicated, considering that you know, typically people who are serving on these ships are not, you know, they're not university educated, they're not mathematicians usually. Um, so it was it was difficult to get them to um, to figure out how to do this. So we see over the course of the from the middle of the 19th century through the turn of the 20th century, actually and beyond into the early 20th century, uh, repeated attempts by mathematicians and navigators to develop techniques that simplify the calculation of great circle routes. And this became kind of a growth industry of developing new kinds of maps, new kinds of kind of overlays to maps, new shorthand techniques for doing these calculations um, that would encourage navigators and their, and their captains to, uh, to pursue these routes, all in the interest of consuming less coal, right, economizing the whole process, economizing time and space. Uh, and that was an, yet another way of trying to get around, uh, you know, the, the constraints of, uh, of lacking coaling stations. So interesting. It's, it's such an interesting and such an unexpected, uh, at least for me, part of the story. For me, too. I wasn't <laughs> expecting it either. So as we move into um, the next chapter, which is the last body chapter, really, chapter six, we also move into another unexpected part of the story for me. And this is a chapter that looks at the uh, sort of emergence of the study and practice of logistics. So until the turn of the 20th century, there was no organized study or practice of logistics. And you show in this chapter that American officers and academics are really developing a science of logistics alongside their efforts to defend distant colonies and to fuel and operate a growing Navy. So this emergence of the science and practice of logistics becomes, again, part of this larger story about coal um, and the sort of uh, and, and concerns with fueling. So, Peter, can you talk about this emergence of the science of logistics for you personally as the author? What do you find most interesting and important about the story in this chapter about the science and practice of logistics as it's emerging in this context? Sure. Um, well, the, the first the first piece, I guess, is that it relates back to one of the, the early main arguments of the book that is, right, it wasn't the desire for coaling stations that led to an American empire, but the creation of this American empire that led to a demand for coaling stations uh, and you know, a, a perceived necessity of defending, say, the Philippines, which is now part of, you know, after 1898, part of um, the United States um, as a territory. Um, or possession. So, uh, what was was fascinating to see as I as I did this research was even though you know logistics conceptually goes back to antiquity, right? Providing for warring armies, you know, far from home 
you know, that as a concept, sure, we can write about, you know, Alexander the Great logistics. We can write about ancient Roman logistics. We can write about logistics in the American Revolution. Um, but as, a, as, as an actual concept that people thought about in quite those terms, at least in the United States, it didn't really exist through the 19th century. And so I spent a lot of time looking in the archives of the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, which is, was created at the, in the middle of the 1880s as a place to train mid-career officers for kind of more senior positions and, and um, kind of more strategic thinking. And when the, the War College began, and I, I talk about this in the book, um, you know, the, the lecturers who are talking about strategy and tactics and this thing called logistics. I got to tell you what it means because you've never heard this term before. And these, you know, they're talking to officers who'd been in the Navy. They could have been in the Navy for years or decades. And they were you know, speaking as if the term had never come up before because it probably hadn't. Uh, but in, in the late 19th century, to the extent that it existed, logistics was at kind of the very bottom of the conceptual ladder, right? What was really important was strategy and tactics, Right. And logistics is what you had to do. Uh, you had to kind of force, to, you know, make sure that you got the resources in order to do the things you wanted to do. By the early 20th century, after 1898, after this creation of a kind of island empire in, in a new way, um, and certainly during and after World War One, uh, logistics becomes at the top, the top rung of this conceptual ladder. And the same, you know, the successors of the early lecturers at the War College and their uh, colleagues working in at the Navy Department in Washington, you know, Navy leadership, they're saying we got to start with logistics and make sure that our strategy conforms to what logistics shows us is possible. So, and over this time, you have the, the War College develops a series of war games and simulations and uh, and uh, exercises for their students to work out these logistics problems. They develop these systems of tables that collect data sent in from ships traveling all over the world. You know how rapidly they burn coal and what kind and all sorts of detail. And this Navy Bureau of Supplies and Accounts, which was something of a backwater, becomes a, a kind of a beehive of conceptual activity saying, we need to understand this management problem. The Navy is a management problem, a resource problem, of which coal is absolutely central. That's the most essential resource of all as outside of the people. Um, if we're going to make this, this Navy operate and, and meet the, you know, the, the needs of the country. So it was... It was a really it was a neat story for me to kind of understand um, how, you know, between the strategic thinkers in the Navy Department and the general board, which is kind of working out high level strategy in Washington and the, the, the academics who are working at the War College and the, the administrators working in the Bureau of Supplies and Accounts, how they make logistics go from being something no one had ever heard of to absolutely central to American strategic thinking. So by the end of this chapter, after we've um, taken a trip into the Matanuska Valley in Alaska, right after we've talked about um, some of the ways that World War I changed American interests in fuel, we have a transition from coal to oil. We have a decision here to abandon coal and pursue oil instead. For you, what's, what's most important for us to understand about that transition from um, a reliance on coal to um, the decision to pursue oil instead? What's most important about that? Sure. Um, well, well, for one, that 
uh, the coal, with this transition to oil that starts, it's, it's a slow process over the early 20th century, really kind of picks up in the 19-teens and, and beyond, um, that coal, kind of the experience of coal in the 19th in, and in the early 20th century set the parameters for how Americans were thinking about energy as a strategic commodity. So that that's I mean something I really I really want to emphasize that the experience with coal really was the context in which these strategic thinkers, whether they're administrators or politicians or presidents or um, uh, or otherwise, that was the context in which they were thinking about uh, about oil. So in in the section that I really started to deal with this, and, and I had to. I had to end the book at some point, and I, I, it was very tempting to just keep going. You know, I, aspirationally, I wanted to have you know whole chapters that dealt with various aspects of oil, and it just there just there wasn't space for it, unfortunately. Um, but but I do end up with uh, a, a different look at the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, which was actually really fun to write and research and write too. And this is, you know, a story usually told as a as a political scandal, uh, right? This is the the illegal leasing of. Uh, some federal land that had been set aside in the early 20th century as an emergency a naval reserve. And uh, in 1921, the Secretary of Interior, Albert Fall, got bureaucratic control of the land from the Navy Department, and he secretly leased it to some cronies. And it turns out he was really corrupt, and he ended up going to prison. And it was a huge, huge political scandal in the 1920s and kind of reverberated for many decades after that. But the, the question I was asking was, well, Fall was corrupt, and we know that, but it turns out there are a lot of other people who were perfectly supportive of this new policy, people who were not corrupt, people who were not getting on the take here. And I wanted to try to understand, you know, from the perspective of these naval um, officers and administrators, why did they think this was a good deal? And it, again, it gets back to how they were thinking strategically about logistics, how they were thinking about logistics and, and bringing oil into uh, their their world of that they were already building with coal and coaling stations. How to transition those physical stations in distant ports and uh, and in continental ports? How to make those now provide oil in a way that they provided coal? Because there are many in the Navy who believe that the um, Congress was simply not giving them the the resources to to make that shift in a way that would keep the country secure. So this was kind of helped explain why they were so supportive of the policy, even when it kind of flew in the face of you know, what appeared to be the long-term interests of the Navy. They were conceiving of those interests in a very different way. So, Peter, as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, let's also dip a little bit into the conclusion of the book. Um, and I have to really just one question for you to open up some of um, per- perhaps what you find most important about this. What are some of the most important ways that the arguments of the book and that what you're, the stories that you're showing us in the book are still relevant today? Yeah, um, so I, I end the book thinking about, uh, again, about an idea, trying to, starting to try to historicize an idea, and this time it's uh, energy independence, mm-hmm. uh, which is a concept that actually I'm, I'm starting to look at on, on its own terms and develop this as, as kind of another project, which is, which is actually really, really interesting. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I end up, this is a, it's a concept that begins really takes off in the 1970s, early 1970s. Actually, you can, you can date it to, I think, the summer of 1973 when it kind of explodes into the political lexicon in the United States in the context of the first energy crisis. And, um, but it becomes this really central element of, uh, of kind of the politics of energy 
in the United States for the through the end of the 20th century into the early 21st century. Um, now, I'm, I'm actually, it's very possible that moment has passed, and that's kind of where this next project is is, is going to go. But um, but certainly for a long time, it was a really important concept. And what what I uh, what I say is. You know, there have been lots of economists who I think very rightly have said, you know, this this idea that if only the United States were not dependent on foreign oil, you know, which which over the course of the late 20th century had grown to be, you know, an enormous percentage of uh, American uh, oil consumption. If only the U.S. were not so dependent, then it wouldn't have all these problems, right? It wouldn't have, uh, you know, be tied up with regimes that per, perhaps were, were unsavory for various reasons. It would maybe help you know, force those governments to reform. It would strengthen the domestic economy. There are all, all sorts of reasons why Americans argued for energy uh, independence. And there are many economists who've said, well, you know, that doesn't really make any sense in economic terms, right? The price of oil is set on a global market. If the U.S. You know, were to not be buying this oil, it would be you know, the, the, these producers will be selling it to other consumers and it really wouldn't affect things like that. But what, what I what I want to argue is energy independence, um, when it's conceived simply in terms of oil, misses the story because the United States was never energy independent. Right. The premise is if only the U.S. were not getting oil from abroad, it would be free of these geostrategic problems. And my point is. You know, there was a time when the U.S. in the early 20th century was producing the vast majority of its oil. It was a net oil exporter. And if we go back, as I do in the book, to the, to the 19th century, it was producing the vast majority of the coal that it was consuming. And it was still involved in, in geopolitics of energy. And it wasn't quite conceived in those terms. And it took decades to kind of work out what that would look like. But it existed. And it existed because this whole process of industrializing energy of industrial you know, steam power and, and fossil fuels was happening alongside the United States getting involved in the rest of the world. And as long as the U.S., and this is my claim, this I can't prove historically, but my, my claim is based on you know, pulling back our chronology, pulling back the periodization beyond just oil in the 20th century, back into coal in the 19th century, we see the, the, the issue was U.S. engagement with the world in a, in a world of industrialization not some intrinsic property of, of oil per se, and that if there were some future where the U.S. You know, was not so dependent on, on foreign oil, which we may be entering that, that future uh, right now, uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're going to be rid of the geopolitics of energy. And I don't think we should kid ourselves that that's going to happen because the U.S. is involved in the rest of the world for lots of other reasons. So, Peter, now that we're at the end of our conversation, there's, of course, a ton of stuff we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? I mean, the book is very, very rich. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, that I'd like to mention? I'll, I'll say one thing that was really fun to discover. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's those discoveries that may or may not be of historiographic significance, but which are really interesting um, that are the ones that stick out in my, my memory. But uh, one of the things I did when I was working on the, the Civil War era of the, the project was I, I found the microfilm at the National Archives that had all the records that were confiscated um, from the Confederacy. And there was a, a reel that probably hadn't seen a lot of use that actually uh, kind of covered the receipts of the Confederate Navy's um, fuel purchases. I, I, I assume it wasn't a popular set of records, um, but I but I did I got them and I, I went through them. 
Uh, I worked with a research assistant to kind of go through them all and, and tabulate them. And what was really fascinating to find was uh, how very quickly, um, not only did the South have, have you know, increasingly or decreasing amounts of coal as you know, what little producing areas uh, gradually fell to northern troops, um, but the, the majority of the fuel they were purchasing was actually wood. And it was just, a, it was kind of this, this revelatory moment of, you know, this was their experience, right? They, they couldn't get enough coal. They were chopping down trees. Now, of course, steam engines in the 19th century burned a lot of wood, um, but the Union never had this kind of problem. They didn't have to put wood into their, the steam engines of their, of their naval vessels, but the Confederacy did. Uh, and that was, kind of, it, it was a hard-won little fact, and I just thought it was pretty interesting. It's a really cool moment in the book, too. Um, so, yeah, that, it's, um, you've woven it into a really, um, a really cool story. Um, so yes. Part of the book is really fun to read. So now that um, the book is out, you've already talked a little bit about um, your current work and perhaps future work on the idea of energy independence. Is that mostly what's occupying you these days? And um, I, so <laughs> yeah, what, what do you, what's inspiring you? Well, I, I'm, I'm torn between a, a couple of projects that, you know, there's several that I'm conceiving of probably as kind of articles of things that are just like on the deck that are interesting that I want to get out. So the energy independence is one of them. Uh, another one has to do with going back to the, you know, that land set aside that from, from Teapot Dome and the, to, for the Navy, right? Uh, that same land, the one that ended up being the, the largest and most valuable over the course of the 20th century was actually not Teapot Dome, which is in Wyoming, uh, but Elk Hills, which is in uh, Southern California. And for decade after decade, this land was you know, talked about in Congress as the most valuable piece of property owned by the federal government. Right? This is our insurance policy for that future future war when America can't get enough fuel. That it's this oil in the ground. We have it for an emergency for the you know for for some terrible circumstance in the future. And then in 1998, the Clinton administration sold the Elk Hills Reserve uh, in what was the the single largest property divestment in American history then, and I think up until the present, uh, until the present. It was over, uh, so it's over three billion, three billion dollars uh, for this uh, this land, and so you know, given everything I'd been researching before, I really wanted to understand what was what was the process by which you know it went from being most valuable to, of course, this should be sold off and dealt with in the market. So that's a, that's another kind of energy security project I'm working on that really actually looks at it focuses on the 1970s into the 1980s and the way. Uh, some certain aspects of security thinking get shifted onto the market while simultaneously um, the power of the power of government, federal government in the context of security actually grows. It's kind of a two, two step of turn more things over to the market because the government has this new power to actually compel any American company to produce oil in an emergency rather than just rely on a single piece of land. And this is a kind of a, a legal story. It's a political story. It's an environmental story. And it's really, really interesting. And I'm actually in the middle of a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests to, to get some of this documentation. And that's really interesting. It's a very interesting way of doing research. Um, it's not, not, not as easy as I'd imagined, uh, but that's, that's kind of ongoing and, and interesting. And I have another article I'm, I'm working on that has to do with uh, uh, forest 
forest policy in the early 19th century as forests that were set aside for naval construction purposes and, and how this actually continues in the 1840s and 50s in a very interesting legal way that, that hasn't really been studied. But the next book, which I'm really excited about, has nothing to do with any of these things whatsoever. Tell us about it. <laughs> I'm looking to shift gears completely, um, at least for a while. Um, I, I've actually gotten really interested uh, I guess the, the continuity is I, I found I was interested in these history of, of ideas. Uh, and that, that was really fun. The, the parts of the book, like I talked about, that dealt with, you know, tracing the, the emergence of a concept over time was really fun to do. And uh, I think I'm conceiving of the next book as a history of ideas, American ideas about intelligence, uh, intellectual intelligence, not like security intelligence. And um, there were kind of several motivations that were pushing me in this direction. And uh, I, I'm really kind of conceiving of a, of, a, of a big project over a long period of time that integrates history of social science and psychology with education history, with um, uh, with political history. Uh, and I'm, I'm super duper excited about it. And uh, the, the first piece that I'm, I'm starting with is, uh, is, a, is an article on the emergence of gifted and talented education uh, in the, in the mid-20th century, and which is a really, really interesting subject. So that's, that's where I'm going. Nothing to do with energy or security, um, but it's really fun and I'm really excited about it. So all of these projects sound super fantastic. And when we stop the recording uh, so that listeners know that I'm going to do this, I'm also going to try to convince you to write a trade book. Trade books, because um, so much of this stuff is so interesting. And the book is written so clearly and just kind of, you know, so it's so attentive to stories and to clear writing. And it's so compelling. Um, I'm going to try to convince you to do that in a moment. But in the meantime, yeah. thank you so much, Peter. Um, all of the new projects sound great. The book is great. And thanks so much for making the time. This is a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining me and the ships outside and the elevator and the helicopters and all of the vehicles. And we will see you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.